Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Today we are talking with Philip Gunev about his new book, Corruption and Organized Crime in Europe. He is the co-author of this book with Vincenzo Ruggiero, and they have a number of people who have made contributions to individual chapters. This is a great combination of two researchers' skills. Professor Ruggiero is a major theorist on the topic of organized crime, and Philip is a leading researcher into corruption in Europe. The issue of corruption is always timely. It may be that in a global financial crisis, the consequences of corrupt practices have even greater impact. The authors focus on the connection between corruption and organised crime, especially how these two concepts interact in a marketplace. Organised criminals need security to ensure stable operations, and the public officials can provide that security through corrupt practices. I do a great deal of research into corruption and organised crime, but I still learn an enormous amount from this book. Any researchers in this area from the English-speaking world will benefit from reading this book as about half of their references come from non-English-speaking sources. Thus, this is an opportunity to see data and theories that you would otherwise not have the chance to read in English. I really enjoyed both reading this book and talking with Philip. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm the co-host Mark Locks, uh, recording here from Brisbane in Australia, and um, today we're talking with Philip Gunev about his new book, uh, Corruption and Organised Crime in Europe, and Philip's in Sofia in Bulgaria right now. So, uh, Philip, uh, just to get us started, do you want to just fill us in on a bit of your background and then how you came to write this book with uh, Vincenzo Ruggiero? Yep. Uh, well, I've been doing uh, research for about... Uh a decade on organized crime here in Bulgaria. And uh, it's one of the, particularly the corruption is one of the big uh, issues in Bulgaria and it's one of the main instruments that uh, organized crime uses. And we've, we've done a lot of research here in Bulgaria on the use of corruption by organized crime. And we started that uh, probably... Uh, in, in the 90s, it was almost too dangerous to, to write about it and to do research. So, uh, similarly to Russia, where probably it still is dangerous. Uh, and, and we started in the very late 90s to, to do this type of research. Uh, we started first with some uh, studies on border corruption, and we published kind of the, the, the menu and the, and the rates of the customs and border guard officers for anything you wanted to smuggle, and we we got the, 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 the bribe rates and, and all that stuff. And um, it was really under the pressure of the European Union and, the, and, and NATO accession processes that uh, it was, we were able to, to start writing about these things. But for many years, it, and, and even until very recently, uh, it was so, so much on the surface, uh, corruption, and, and, and even organized criminals are more or less celebrities in Bulgaria, that it allowed us uh, to develop a very good understanding of, of uh, both organized crime and the way it uses corruption, even without being part of the, of the law enforcement community. And um, police officers were also fairly corrupt, uh, and uh, for many years they were speaking to us very openly, 
uh, and uh, we were in a very privileged uh, situation in Bulgaria, unlike many other um, parts of Europe, to uh, to do research on, on these issues. So when in nine uh, in 2008 uh, the European Commission decided to do a similar study on on all of Europe, uh, and and they had a public tender. Uh, we were naturally in a very good position, uh, and were my, my institute, the Center for the Study of Democracy, uh, was uh, had developed some of the um, most uh, detailed knowledge on the subject. Uh, so we we won this tender, and we won the, uh, the contract to to do this study uh, throughout Europe. Uh, basically, that's that's uh, kind of the background and how how we got into into this whole field. Right, right. So this actual book is a, the product of that study. So yeah, the the book uh, it built, of course, um, that that was the background, the glue that the the study was pretty much the glue that, that put it together. It allowed us to, uh, on on the one hand, to uh, to find local experts because. There are many there are many issues uh, on law enforcement that could be researched from outside consultants like ourselves, but corruption uh, it's a it's a social phenomenon that requires uh, and and its relation with with organized crime and it's the use by organized crime requires a very detailed uh, historical and cultural knowledge that uh, we couldn't. Uh, naturally have for all uh, 27 EU member states. So it allowed us to go and search for, for experts in, in each uh, EU member state, EU member state that could, uh, that could write about it. The peculiar thing was that in, in quite a few EU member states, there was really no one that could, uh, outside the law enforcement community, and, and certainly no academics that could uh, really write about this topic. Uh, it was uh, it was something that uh, um, academics were kept aside from, even in, mm. in big countries like uh, like Germany or, uh, or 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 France. It was it was very difficult to find uh, someone that could uh, that really understood organized crime uh, and, and and understood its mechanics and and could uh, from an academic standpoint uh, write about uh, corruption. Mm. And I actually confronted several uh, well-known academics, researchers on corruption, because in every country we found someone who could say, yeah, I'm I'm an expert on corruption, I'm an academic who studies uh, public attitudes towards corruption. That was the easy part, and and we found a lot of these academics. But when I asked them, well, um, what do you know about the way organized crime or white-collar criminals use, use corruption? And then, uh, yeah, there was this uh, uh, really hiatus of, of, of knowledge uh, that that was that was not there. And I think one French academic uh, provided me uh, with 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 my answer, probably, and, and, a, and another uh, British academic uh, who uh, um, basically their, their argument was that in white-collared criminals. In, in countries like France or Germany or the, or the UK are in a very uh, different class, a social class, which is so remote from, uh, from academics. And academics are so rarely allowed 
uh, access to these elites, uh, uh, even criminal, not not only criminal elites but economic elites, that uh, it really uh, and and the state certainly doesn't provide um, any funding for research into uh, the the crimes of the elite that. It really deprives the the academic from being able to do research on these issues, and we found uh, hardly any uh, countries in Europe where uh, research on corruption was was funded. And only in the past year, the European Commission decided to give the first very big grant uh, for a EU-wide um, uh, study on, on on corruption, a scientific grant for EU-wide study on corruption. And it was a similar situation uh, we faced with uh, in, in in other countries where, uh, or like in, in the UK, uh, Dick Hobbs has has argued that uh, uh, about the the social uh, class and the uh, and the, the the class differentiation of of, of criminals uh, and the. Uh, and the connection between the, the proletarians or the, the work, the working class, and the, and the organized crime. And again, he saw this is an impediment to academics to access uh, and to do proper research on organized crime, because again, um, they came from a very different social background. Uh, they were in a in a different social circle that really didn't grant them access uh, to do the the type of uh, almost anthropological study that anthropological and, uh, or ethnographic approach that you need to understand really how corruption works. Mm. Nevertheless, we were able to um, together uh, a team of um, seven or, or eight uh, different uh, criminologists and specialists in organized crime who, who, uh, who had done some research on, on corruption and, and were willing to, to contribute to the study and to present uh, how organized crime works in, in their countries. So um, the book is a little different from, from the study that we did for the, for the European Commission because it includes some additional chapters. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, we have a separate chapter on the UK by Suffolk and Ackix, uh of Oxford. And uh, we have also uh, a separate study on the... Uh, uh, Country study on, on Russian organized crime and corruption, which was done by Paddy Rawlinson, who was formerly at the London School of Economics. <coughs> um, and uh, yeah, the, these are some of the uh, this, these are some of the things that make the the, the book different from from the uh, from the original report that we did for the European Commission. Right, right. Um, I mean, I have to concur with the things you're saying. Coming from Australia, we don't necessarily have a class system in the European sense, but we still have a great deal of trouble getting information. We're lucky that we have uh, commissions of inquiry that put out transcripts, and it's mostly been inquiries into the police who are corrupt, and uh, they regularly roll over and provide wonderful detail for criminological study where they're asked questions of why did they join corruption or why did they participate in certain activity. What we're missing, I think, too, is still that idea of um, the ability to study the organized criminals themselves uh, because it's very, very hard other than the criminals who actually effectively retire through imprisonment and then write their autobiographical material. We've almost got nothing that we can use for data. Yeah. Um, 
even even sometimes uh, uh, the police uh, the access uh, to to police data uh, or or the the police information that existed was very uh, fractured and 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 didn't allow us to uh, together good in, uh, together good information particularly on on the organized crime use of corruption and the reason is that um, not many uh, hardly any countries in the European Union have something uh, like what the serious organized crime agency has in the UK, which is a specialized unit that examines how organized crime uses corruption in the UK. It publishes a biennial threat assessment on the use of corruption by organized crime, uh, not, not publicly. Uh, but uh, this type of concentrated knowledge and analysis uh, and of someone that we can sit and speak with uh, didn't exist simply across Europe. Most um, anti-corruption units um, or professional standards units that we saw across Europe very often had a mixture of, of, um, of work focusing either on, on uh, police misbehavior and crime or, or kind of lower level uh, police uh, involvement in crime and, and, and corruption, but uh, didn't really have this uh, kind of uh, concentrated and, and systematically uh, analyzed uh, information. So, we our approach, one of the approaches that we thought to, uh, that we'll take was to to go and talk to these anti-corruption units. But uh, really, what we found is that uh, many of them simply had a very partial information that didn't give us the big picture and even in even in the UK uh, the serious organized crime agency stopped at uh, and, and their knowledge was pretty much uh, limited to to their understanding of organized crime and when we spoke about uh, white collar crime and the way um, for instance a big corruption scandal like the BA British aerospace uh, system scandal uh, where um, millions were given uh, to uh, Saudi princes uh, to get a, a big uh, contract, uh, defense contract. Uh, this type of, uh, of and it was a very complex scheme of organized crime, of, of, of organized corruption. Um, this type of white-collar crime didn't really fall within the serious organized crime agency responsibilities, was, was part of the serious fraud office. So even in the UK, you had kind of the elite crime, the elite corruption being investigated in what, um, uh, by the serious fraud office, and kind of the the more uh, I guess the low level organized crime being investigated by the serious uh, organized crime agency. Right. So what methods did you use to gather the data for this study? How did you go about it? Um. The, the, well, we had basically a two-pronged approach. One, one was to go in-depth in several countries. And in these, uh, in these countries, we hired uh, local uh, criminologists that had, had done research on organized crime for, for over a decade. Uh, we, uh, we basically wanted they've developed and to use their connections uh, uh, the knowledge that they had on the subject. Uh, 
uh, we we selected uh, individuals uh, whom we knew had access to such data, uh, who have analyzed uh, such data, but who simply didn't have a chance to to publish it previously. And um, actually, um, in in France, for instance, uh, our our expert at that time wasn't even comfortable publishing his name uh, <laughs> because he was working for a for a government uh, uh, institute, and uh, he uh, he was pretty much uh, afraid to to speak uh, publicly about about this topic. Um, and, and in the book, he decided to the, to, to make his name public. Uh, in for the other countries where we couldn't find uh, experts, which was the majority of the countries, uh, we simply much we we simply decided to uh, uh, to go with in-depth interviews. Uh, with and and there uh, the I guess the task was how to to design um, kind of sample of, of experts. Uh, that is because we had. To do less than between five and ten interviews per country, uh, we pretty much had to do a kind of the Delphi, the Delphi approach, where we that we do a, a survey of experts, but we did it uh, we did it through in-depth interviews rather than to uh, uh, submitting them with questionnaires and so forth. And in each country, we we wanted to find five uh, experts either from uh, prosecutors or Independent academics or journalists or, or other uh, experts, uh, private sector fraud investigators, uh, lawyers, this type of people to to, to speak to us about uh, about corruption. And I have to say that in some countries, it was even difficult to find such people ready to agree to speak to us. Uh, Cyprus was, I guess, the the most uh, obvious. The, the, the most difficult place where we wrote to several academics, uh, we wrote to several uh, journalists uh, and, and it was still difficult and uh, we decided to take an, and, and I guess because it's a very small country everyone knows everyone uh, people just didn't feel comfortable even when we promised them to be the, the interviews to be anonymous uh, they didn't feel comfortable without knowing us to speak to us. Uh, this is something, by the way, which the European Commission uh, was, uh, by allowing us to do anonymous interviews, which they usually don't because they want to make sure that they know who the contractor spoke to. Uh, that was uh, uh, that that really helped for the study to have a, a better value because most people simply. They don't feel comfortable revealing their, their names uh, uh, on, on this issue. And in Cyprus, uh, we were actually forced to go and look to diplomats and, and law enforcement liaison officers, whom we knew had an external view, but yet from sitting in the country and working with the law enforcement communities and, and working on, on organized crime cases, they had some knowledge about corruption. And... Uh, this uh, this was our substitute, uh, basically, for not being able to find uh, local uh, experts willing to speak to us. Right, in many, right. in in other countries, we, um, for instance, in Luxembourg, 
Luxembourg is, you know, it's uh, uh, reputed to have uh, the reputation of a kind of a tax haven, a place where a lot of uh, white-collar crime um, kind of uses as, a, as, a, as an intermediary place or as an important base. And there, uh, every government official that we spoke to said simply that uh, there isn't organized crime or corruption. Uh-huh. Very similar to Cyprus. From, from, the Cypriot, from the Cypriot police, we got an official letter saying that there, that there was no information that organized crime in Cyprus uses any corruption. And for that matter, another letter came from a, from a prosecutor claiming that there is no organized crime in Cyprus. Excellent. Uh, oh, wonderful place to live then. Yeah. So we had all these uh, uh, official statements, and um, this type of statements were not simply uh, statements uh, that they sent, because we said this is a study from the Director General Home Affairs of the European Commission. They want to know. We, we, we didn't say at that time that the, the study will be public because we, this was up to the member states at the end to decide if the study wants to be public. We said this is a study for the European Commission. We don't want to, uh, the interviews and the data you provide will be anonymized. It's, it's not going to be made public. And still we got these letters. And, um, None of these uh, countries ever uh, releases uh, public reports or, or any any form of public accountability to inform the public in, in the country about the state of corruption and, and organized crime. And uh, in, in all of them, when we went to our alternative sources, of course, we came up with, uh, uh, with uh, significant and various information on the issue. For instance, in, in the case of of Cyprus, when we started digging through, even through, through media and, and to talk to, um, we spoke to a journalist there as well and to the dip, and to foreign diplomats. And, uh, yeah, it came out that, uh, Cyprus, for instance, was for a long time, uh, an important, uh, kind of launch pad for illegal cigarette smuggling in, into the European Union. And until, uh, a few years ago, when uh, when Cyprus uh, decided not to be uh, this launch pad, uh, a number of international cigarette companies uh, had uh, their factories, their manufacturing facilities, and they were uh, producing uh, ten times more than what uh, the Cypriot population could uh, <laughs> could consume in cigarettes. And what we found out that uh, um, yeah, one of uh, a relative to the to the prosecutor, uh, to the attorney general of Cyprus, was basically involved in, and controlled the production of, of, of uh, one particular brand of cigarette, which was smuggled into the European Union. We found that uh, the head of the um, of the Cypriot uh, immigration uh, mi- migration police was also arrested on on charges of corruption. I just want to inform our listeners that we had a technical breakdown and that we're restarting the interview. So, uh, Philip, well, we were talking about Cyprus, and now I think we're moving on to the discussion of countries that were in denial about their corruption and organized crime problems. Yeah. Uh, yeah in our communication, uh, in the types of interviews that we were uh, trying to do to get uh, the best information on, on this very sensitive issue, 
we had a lot of denial that, that we came across. And it came uh, uh, certainly from the government uh, interviews that, that we try and the institutions that we try to, uh, uh, to approach. And uh, of course, our main focus was to try to, to get to uh, uh, corruption investigation, police to departments or to uh, prosecutors who investigate corruption. Uh, but we initially we got a lot of uh, just uh, negative answers. For instance, from Cyprus, we received uh, letters claiming that uh, there wasn't really any organized crime or or uh, any any proof that uh, whatever organized crime exists didn't uh, use corruption. And then and, and uh, similarly, we had a uh, interview with a uh, with a high level of, uh, French prosecutor uh, responsible for uh, overseeing anti-corruption policies, and he similarly claimed that in in France there was serious crime, but uh, it was somehow disorganized, and we couldn't really speak about uh, organized crime. And something we came across uh, uh, many countries was uh, they were trying to use uh, all sorts of euphemisms to. To speak about uh, the the issue of corruption and organized crime, and and of course uh, we see that uh, uh, in in many uh, uh, police departments where they usually talk about professional standards or or uh, they talk about misconduct and and the word corruption is always uh, uh, being avoided, and and even we came uh, across discrepancies. For instance, it it was it was in, an interesting case when we in France. Uh, uh, the official information they provided us with was that there were 20 cases of police corruption in the in the year when uh, we carried out the study. At the same time, in the UK, there were hundreds of, of cases of of, of of corruption that were registered, and we were trying to uh, to get a sense of uh, who used what definition of corruption, and it, and it used the, and it seemed that uh, some countries were. So much trying to, and, and France was one of them. Was so much uh, trying to avoid the use of word corruption that they had such very narrow definitions that pretty much registered no cases of corruption. <laughs> uh, and uh, the uh, yeah, and, and coming back to uh, the case of Cyprus, uh, when we tried to uh, to find alternative sources of information across, uh, of course, we came about uh, across various uh, cases of uh, high-level uh, uh, officials, uh, including a relative of the uh, uh, prosecutor general who was involved in the illegal cigarette trade, or uh, the head of the immigration unit who was uh, facilitating illegal migration, uh, and. Uh, Cyprus was, of course, uh, a major tourist destination with a lot of uh, sex and, and, and drug trade. And, and uh, we certainly found that uh, local police was uh, very, and, and local uh, government was, was very often closely involved uh, with uh, local uh, businessmen who, who controlled this trade. Yeah. Uh, and... Um do you think that this is an official policy or is it just an avoidance issue where people just don't want to approach the issue of corruption? Does it is it because they want to disguise it or is it because they don't want to deal with it? Um, I mean, the, uh, it, it's taken the European Union a long 
a long time to to come to an agreement and uh, on on dealing with the issue of, of of corruption, and it's only really uh, in the next year that for the first time the European Union is taking a, a step as a as a whole to to start looking at the issue of corruption. So far, uh, it was really uh, the, the attention was always focused on on Eastern Europe, the new member states. Uh, in the last couple of years, particularly Bulgaria and Romania, who were uh, subject to a special monitoring on corruption and organized crime uh, to assess if they're uh, fit to uh, join the the common EU border area, the Schengen area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, but but the issue of, of it's part of the partially the problem is that. Uh, uh, internal affairs uh, and, and police matters have been uh, traditionally uh, a national, uh, the, the so-called third pillar or a national issue that the European Union didn't really have any uh, any word in, in how to deal with. And there were no common standards, anti-corruption standards or anything of that sort, unlike any other public policy area in the EU. And uh, with the new Lisbon Treaty, uh, which came into force a couple of years ago, this this has changed, and now uh, there is this new push uh, to uh, to come up with a common definition of, of uh, at least what type of crimes come under corruption, as well as to start monitoring corruption. But I think uh, uh, what we'll see is uh, again countries will probably try to narrow down the definition and mm. to uh, and both of corruption and, and of organized crime because we have uh, of course countries like the uk where uh, they're in control of the offshore uh, zone regulations of the cayman islands or the jersey and all these uh, other offshore areas which the uk treasury uh, controls and, and which um, inevitably come involved in in laundering uh, proceeds of corruption from uh, corrupt uh, leaders across the world. And uh, I'm, I'm sure they will make everything possible to stop uh, any, any kind of, of monitoring to, to go beyond uh, these very sensitive uh, issues. And I think uh, uh, even higher level uh, cor- corruption mechanism, something that uh, Larry Lessig at uh, Harvard has called the institutional corruption or kind of the, the legalized form of, of corrupt influence that political parties or, or, or businesses have, this will probably stay uh, still outside uh, something that the European Union will, will try to monitor because I'm sure many member states will, will oppose to this. Um, so it'll be a lowest common denominator situation uh, yeah Mo- most likely just just like the united nations uh, uh, corruption convention which uh, i've attended a lot of these discussions where you see uh country member representatives from very corrupt countries trying to make sure that there isn't really any real monitoring mm, uh, mm. And, and that's what we see in most member states, uh, uh, a denial of, of, of corruption and, and uh, uh, really a justification of why very little anti-corruption measures are in, are in place because uh, they say, well, there is no corruption. Why should we 
have any anti-corruption measures, which become sort of a catch-22 because then they uncover less corruption, which uh, yes. f- feeds into the kind of the their story that there isn't any corruption. And so this, this is, is what this is something that we saw especially across uh, Nordic countries, uh, which are of course at the top of uh, all uh, corruption indices as the least corrupt countries and. Uh, this is, uh, we, we saw very little uh, anti-corruption activities or measures taking place. And uh, corruption is just presumed not to be there. Uh-huh. Uh, which which uh, actually makes, uh, makes uh, uh, the whole presumption quite uh, questionable because when you think that there are common EU borders and uh, uh, these, we have basically a common one common EU borders, uh, much like the United States has. Uh, and uh, if uh, criminals try to enter, uh, they will uh, at some point try to to go through the border that poses the least the least risks. And this would be the border that has the least anti-corruption measures. So in the long run, unless there is some type of, uh, of uh, unification of standards, uh, we can see uh, even these uh, non-corrupt countries coming under great pressure from international criminals. Right. I mean, that is one of the great dilemmas in research in corruption. If you find a lot of corruption, does that mean there is more corruption than somewhere else? Or were you just looking better? Did you have a better method of discovering corruption? So it's very yeah. hard to determine how much you've actually uncovered as opposed to how much is really there. Yeah. Now, well, we certainly saw in our research some big differences, uh, especially when it came to uh, judicial corruption. In uh, in Western Europe, uh, there were really countries where uh, we we tried to speak to lawyers, to um, to former prosecutors, and uh, just independent analysts, and no one could really remember the last time of, of really uh, a traditional type of graft or corruption where a judge, especially. But uh, even prosecutors, which which are more of, of course vulnerable to corruption than judges, uh, were convicted or, or investigated for corruption. Which mm. in, in in Eastern Europe there were, uh, and even Greece, there were just dozens of cases annually that were being investigated. Um, very similar for political corruption, where in Western Europe really this connection between traditional forms of organized crime like uh, drug trafficking and, and prostitution very rarely connected in some way to the uh, to the top political elite. Uh, mm. The top political elite was usually involved in some kind of, we could see there the white collar crime connection. But in yeah. Eastern Europe, even these top political levels and, and members of parliament, uh, in, in, not only in Eastern Europe, but also in Italy, uh, were uh, very much uh, involved with uh, basically uh, traditional forms of organized crime. Yep, yep. I mean, I found the same thing in Australia. The politicians and the police have completely separate corruption networks. They yeah. don't overlap very often. Uh, and yeah. this brings us nicely to the topic of tobacco, which um, I understand you write, as, uh, certainly the book says, you write as one of the largest uh, criminal activities, the smuggling of tobacco and excise avoidance. Uh, yeah, this, uh, particularly in Europe, has has been a growing issue over the last decade. 
um, because the European Union has introduced the type of a taxation, common taxation policies on, on excisable goods that uh, is, in my opinion, not very well uh, thought out. And uh, it, it, it is bringing the EU, especially the Eastern European land borders, uh, to a situation very similar to the prohibition era in, in the United States. And it reminds us of the Canadian-US border in the in the yeah. beginning of last century, where we see mass uh, quantities of, of smuggling of cigarettes in, in every possible way and, and all sorts of, of local people and uh, uh, entrepreneurs uh, being involved in the smuggling. Uh, big illegal markets in, in, in several countries in, in along the eastern uh, European border uh, uh, we see countries with uh, 30 to 40 percent of, of uh, illegal cigarettes market. Pretty much, very very few countries in, in Europe has have uh, illegal markets that are less than 10 percent of the overall cigarettes market. And even uh, big countries like Germany uh, have 20 over 20 percent uh, of, of cigarettes uh, sold there are illicit, which uh, creates a, a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, and, and that industry, in, in, uh, especially in, in Eastern European countries, has overtaken the, the illegal drug trade uh, because they're heavy smokers and, uh, with, uh, and, and, and not, not traditionally big drug users. So uh, the, cigarette market, the, illicit, the illicit cigarette market has attracted uh, uh, even uh, a lot of drug, uh, drug dealers and drug smugglers who now fi find it. Uh, more profitable and, and less risky because it overlaps often with the with the legitimate markets. Uh, mm. We find a lot of legitimate uh, we find a lot of legitimate companies that are also being involved in the uh, illegal uh, cigarette trade. Not only the big international tobacco companies have uh, for a long time been blamed for for being at the heart of it. But after certain measures, now they're supposed to pay fine, fines for, for each uh, box of illegal cigarettes that, uh, uh, of, of their brand legit, that, that is being smuggled and, and found in, inside uh, the European Union. But there are a lot of smaller producers and a lot of uh, illegal uh, producers across the EU that uh, um, are now f fueling uh the illicit uh, tobacco trade but yep. it's uh pretty much uh, uh do um, companies in the middle east and and the former soviet union that provide and and in china which produces counterfeit cigarettes uh that uh, fuel the uh, the big uh, illicit tobacco trade and this is bound to to stay for the next uh, uh and and probably to increase particularly in eastern europe because uh, Eastern European countries are supposed to bring their excise taxation to the levels of, of Western Europe, which will make uh, illicit cigarettes even more expensive for mm. uh, uh, consumers uh, in, in Eastern Europe. And even the EU is pushing uh, countries on the periphery of the European Union, like Moldova or the former, uh, former Soviet republics or, 
or former Yugoslav republics to increase their excise taxes and basically pushing them into creating big legal markets there as well, uh, based on the presumption in it that if somehow everyone has high excise tax levels, will the, the illicit market will uh, disappear. Yeah, uh, that, that can work into... Yeah. Sorry. That can work internally. In Australia, where we only have 20 million people, we have uh, massive profits from tobacco smuggling where $20,000 will fill a container full of uh, raw tobacco in the Philippines and then uh, you can sell it for one to two million with very, very, very low penalties, maybe a fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the penal policies are, are also another issue that is slowly, very slowly catching up because it's still considered... Uh, at the at the low level of, of illicit drug trade, it's, uh, of illicit cigarette trade, it's just considered an, an administrative offense. Yes. So uh, retailers, uh, uh, including little small stores or, or even uh, street dealers, you cannot really do anything about them. At the middle levels is where the most of the real illicit trade is going on because on the import and, and very often at the production level, it's, it's usually legal. Uh, yep. So we have just uh, a very small kind of window of opportunity to tackle the illegal mm. trade. But the main thing is that uh, in a country like Bulgaria uh, or, or in a lot of the Eastern European countries, it, uh, which are vulnerable to corruption because they don't have very strong law enforcement or, or judiciary to start with, uh, it creates a huge amount of of um, of of funds that are used to corrupt uh, both uh, street-level uh, police officers as well as border guards, as well as customs officers. And uh, it, uh, because of the, uh, of the involvement of, of, uh, of legitimate companies, uh, there is, uh, we, we see a lot of evidence of, of uh, uh, politicians at, at various levels being um, uh, in, involved in, in the illicit uh, tobacco trade or, or supporting it, uh, either through uh, trying to even pass uh, uh, um, leg leg uh, legislation that facilitates it in some way. For instance, in Bulgaria and Romania, which are uh, uh, some of the main entry points for, for illicit tobacco uh, into the EU, uh, the uh, the duty free shops along the land borders for many years were used uh, as a smuggling um, venue, smuggling point for for all sorts of uh, excisable goods, and uh, they have uh, the because these stores are also legitimate and they exist on the airports and so forth. Uh, the European Union forced uh, all EU member states to close land border. Uh, duty-free store duty-free shops because they were uh, used as smuggling points uh, but all these uh, industries because they're legitimate uh, they have their strong lobbies and they continually lobby for reopening uh, these stores which inevitably will uh, will uh, revive this trade in bulgaria for instance we estimated that about 30 percent of cigarettes sold in the country were sold through a couple of dozen duty-free shops on, huh. on these external land borders. Wow. Uh, uh, it, it created at the land border crossings, uh, the duty-free shops the, the, and the pressure from, uh, from smuggling created uh, such a corrupt atmosphere that it, it still continues. Just two weeks ago, uh, a 
about uh, 30 customs officers were uh, apprehended and a dozen of them were, were uh, arrested for uh, uh, being involved in, in sm facilitating smuggling. Is there any and, estimate of how much money is being lost to taxation through all of this? Um, yeah, and the, uh, but I think that because of the lack of clear understanding of how much the illegal market is, uh, these are underestimated because the official yeah. estimation for the EU is 10 billion uh, wow. euros. But that's, uh, uh, having seen uh, how this estimate is made, I think it's a, uh, it's uh, significantly underestimated because only in a very, very small market like the Bulgarian one, we're talking about a uh, little less than half a, half a billion uh, euros. Yeah. So uh, for a big market like Germany, it's where you have 20% of, of it being illegal trade and uh, it's probably even more. Because some countries invested heavily in tackling the illicit uh, uh, cigarette market and it's very expensive to to deal with it and the uk invested uh, um, tens of millions of pounds over uh, a few years to try to to reduce it and suppress it and for the uk it's probably uh, easier because the it's an island and and uh, the protection of the borders it's easier but along the land borders where you have uh, literally from old grandmothers going across the border and, and buying cheap cigarettes on the other side and bringing them back to uh, truckloads and uh, going through. <laughs> we literally have a, a container trucks going through the green borders, through uh, logging uh, roads, through the through the forest, uh, smuggling uh, cigarettes. It's, uh, uh, it's It has become, yeah, as I said, really like the prohibition era in, in the U.S., yeah, I've read a couple of articles, uh, journal articles about tobacco smuggling in Europe, and they point out that many of the people who are involved are actually not criminal organisations, but uh, someone has an uncle who drives trucks across Europe, and he's always bringing back cigarettes yeah. for the family and all their friends. So it's actually there's a lot of low-level uh, operation of uh, smuggling. Now, the uh, for instance, the Bulgarian state railway companies uh, was. Uh, uh, had difficult time finding uh, replacement uh, train con train uh, drivers because all of them had been banned uh, for smuggling <laughs> for smuggling cigarettes from neighboring Serbia because about 40 of them that worked along this uh, border all of them had uh, been registered for smuggling cigarettes so now they had to move people from other parts of the country because uh, they had clean basically criminal records <laughs> <laughs> to drive the train across borders. But the, then they themselves might get uh, their own criminal records once the opportunity arises. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that that'll be the case. <laughs> um, we're running out of time, and I, I really do appreciate the time you've spent talking to me. So we'll, we'll move on to the, the next question, which, of course, is uh, what are you going to be working on next? So you uh, finished this book, and I, I understand you've been doing the study of border guards as well. Yeah, um, I guess building uh, upon this research that we did for um, the European Commission, the European Border Agency uh, Frontex uh, uh, asked us to do research on corruption and in, in, in the anti-corruption measures in border guards. 
on uh, across the EU, which uh, pretty much turned into a study of uh, studying police corruption in the EU because a lot of the uh, of the border guard duties are carried out by regular police in, in most of Europe. And it's been um, yeah quite fascinating to see how uh, dynamic the the corruption situation was and how the economic crisis influenced uh, some of the uh, corruption patterns because uh, some of the illicit markets, uh, the the sex trade market, which a lot of street a lot of police officers were exposed to, or the drugs market uh, had shrunk in in revenues. On the other hand, uh, the illicit tobacco. Uh, market had grown, and uh, particularly border guards, but also uh, police patrols were were very much exposed and and had become involved. And we saw really cases uh, across uh, uh, all, all Europe that that involved uh, uh, the corrupt police officers being uh, complicit in in the smuggling of tobacco. So that's uh, that 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 report is uh, about to to become public shortly. Wonderful, wonderful. So if anyone was listening and they wanted to uh, see a copy of the report, where would they look? Um, our website, uh, where uh, of the Center for the Study of Democracy, uh, uh, would probably post it. It's, it's www.csd.bg, the Center for the Study of Democracy. Uh, but the Frontex website will probably also feature it when, once it's public. Excellent, excellent. I might be able to update our website as well with a link to it as well. Well, thank you very much, Philip, for uh, yep. talking yeah. to me today. Um, and uh, all the best with the new report and whatever comes after that. I'm sure you'll be keep moving on to even bigger and greater things. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. You have been listening to Philip Gunev discuss his new book, Corruption and Organised Crime in Europe. I'm Mark Locks, the co-host of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. Thank you for listening.